90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Uh, doing pretty well. Just, you know, grading finals, I imagine. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> actually, we're recording this a little bit early. It's the last podcast that I will record in Pennsylvania. And when this airs, I will be at AGU in San Francisco at the American Geophysical Union meeting. <laughs> and we know that we tried to do a podcast from AGU last year. And I got horribly sick at AGU, <laughs> and that episode just didn't happen. So we didn't want that to happen again this exactly. year. Exactly. That's the only one we've missed in how many episodes? Well, this <laughs> is episode 99, Yay. which, if you count like a sane person, means it's our 100th show. <laughs> um, I can't believe we're still doing this. Oh, I know. It's... <laughs> And I'm embarrassed at how many people that I talk to that are like, I can't believe you're still doing that. And I don't know if that's a reflection of my stick with itness or or what. <laughs> or them doubting my true nerdiness. But, you know, here we are. Yeah, I mean, it's been pretty much two years, over a hundred hours of recording. <laughs> well, it's probably more hours of recording than that, but well, okay, over 100 hours of produced content. Yes. So if you listen to all the shows back to back to back while you're at work, it would take you over two working weeks to listen. That's impressive. That's impressive. And I don't know about you, but I don't plan on stopping anytime soon. No, no, I'm good. I'm in it to win it, man. Yeah. <laughs> Let's do it. I mean, the problem is, like, I don't know how many more. No, surely. There's there's tons of geology we haven't covered yet, Right. Right, oh yeah, right. and we're learning new things all the time. Yeah, that is true. So as long as, as long as that keeps coming down the pipeline, we'll have stuff to talk about. <laughs> and there's always interesting people to talk to. That is true. Way more so than I thought there were out there. So that's fun. <laughs> yeah, and actually, so my my wife suggested that we call this our fun hundredth show. <laughs> I love it. I, I, I do too. So credit to Lindy for the show title here. Happy fun hundredth. Happy fun hundredth. Yes. <laughs> oh man. So we're doing something different. Obviously we had to come up with something different because it's our fun hundredth show, right? Yeah. <laughs> and um, we thought it would be fun to go back, reflect a little bit on the show and how it got going and a little bit of our past knowing each other mm -hmm. and revisit some of our favorite fun paper Friday segments. I was shocked at how quickly we chose our favorite fun paper Fridays. And we had very, we had several that were overlapping. Yeah. Yeah, we did, which was also sort of surprising. Um, so yeah, this is, I'm excited to revisit these papers because, you know, rarely do you get a lot of enjoyment about rereading a scientific paper, but these give it's me true. lots. <laughs> yeah. And if you already have heard these, please do listen and we're going to kind of do some chat in between, but we also have a new fun paper at the end of the show and a bonus. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> um, first, I mean, I think we're going to ask our listeners for something, aren't we? Besides audio comments? Yeah, another form of audio. We need new music. Yeah, we're really tired of the lame music that John made up while he was sitting in the bathroom on GarageBand, right? Well, I was sitting at the kitchen, to be fair. <laughs> uh, but no, I had 
recently got the, I think it was the iPhone 6 Plus. It was one of the big iPhones where you could play with GarageBand on it and actually do some things. And I just threw this stuff together and I was messing with it. And I was like, oh, this is fun. And then we decided to start a podcast. Yeah. <laughs> and we needed some royalty-free music. So that became the podcast music. Which is excellent, but... We should probably we would move like on. <laughs> <laughs> Some upgraded music, exactly. Exactly. And, you know, we've talked back and forth. Like, we really like the the theme to Freakonomics Radio and to Heavyweight by Gimlet. Mm-hmm. All of these songs. But we thought it would be fun, since we have some creative listeners, to see if our listeners want to try to come up with some theme music for us. Right, exactly. I mean, no promises on using it, guys, but we'd be super excited to have some submissions, which we would obviously credit you for. Right, we would, and we can always, you know, put it into GarageBand and add some other instruments or do whatever. So if you're saying, well, I don't have a full band, that's okay. (laughs) Yes, we can make that happen. No, John can make that happen. (laughs) (laughs) but i think this will be uh, a lot of fun no guarantees on when we get new music into the show but something that we're definitely thinking about unless we get massive revolt about changing the current music (laughs) i would love that i would love if your uh your garage band ditty that you made up quickly is like a cult favorite (laughs) yeah but uh I don't think we've ever talked about the origin of the music before. So there you go. That is the origin of the music for the show. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Um, What about the origin of the show? (laughs) I don't know if I can remember back this far, man. Oh, yeah. I tried to listen to a little bit of episode zero, Hello World, and it hurt. I can't do it. Uh, (laughs) I can't do it. I used to make some notes about how I should change some of my speaking dynamics and everything. And I just, I gave up and thought, well, people are going to listen or they're not. And I just, whew, that was a painful one. Yeah. So (laughs) I think, you know, I I listened to a lot of podcasts and I was really getting into them a couple years ago, many and many fields, listening to meteorology podcasts, electronics podcasts, like Embedded.fm that we were talking uh, about last week with Alicia, and thought there's not really a good geology show. There were a couple out there that they had sporadic release schedules or dubious facts. Uh, (laughs) there, There was nothing that I felt like was a show for people interested in geoscience to enjoy. So I called you up and dragged you into doing this. Yeah. I, I think somewhat reluctantly, if I remember right. I, yeah, I think so. <laughs> because I remember that one of your big complaints was was the sporadic release dates. And you're like, we're going to do this every week. And I thought, no, I can't do this every week. There's no way. Like, there's I, I don't commit to anything like that. <laughs> and <laughs> And you said, no, we have to. This is what we're doing. And you were right. <laughs> <laughs> this time and uh yeah i got drug along i mean why start it i got drug along because i'm really passionate about sort of getting science to people that don't science and i thought that maybe this was a good medium to do that and it seemed like podcasts are really popular in general and there's something for everybody out there and if somebody just stumbled across our show and was like oh well i kind of like geology or I kind of like geography or meteorology and then they get more interested in it because of us which has happened 
that's super fulfilling for me as an educator and just a science enthusiast in general. Oh, absolutely. And, and I think another reason, really, was to broaden our knowledge and our horizons for ourselves. Oh, yeah. Because <laughs> you said that some podcasts have dubious facts. That's not to say we don't either, but we try. <laughs> we, we do try. And it's one of those things where one of us is curious about something and we look up a bunch about it and learn about it and end up writing a show about it generally because we found it interesting and we hope other people do too. Right, exactly. And I mean, a lot of this stuff, I mean, even if it's stuff that we're experts in, I still feel like I learn stuff when I sit down to write the show notes. Best way to learn is by teaching. Oh, right, exactly. And it's like, oh, I mean, I know all this stuff about rivers, but oh, that's a cool fact that I didn't know. Or, hey, I never thought about it this way. And so that's um, a really big upside. I also like, I mean, this isn't why, but this is one of those major benefits for having kept going this long, is like, it's the one thing that centers me every week. And it's kind of cool. It's always a get back to basics talk, sort of, even if it's the talk that we do before the show, you know, and we're just talking about science or complaining about something. It's just the thing that happens every week. And I think that's really good. It is. It's one of those things that helps keep us excited about what we're doing. Right, exactly. Because you get so bogged down, which is usually what we're complaining about before the <laughs> <Right>. show. <laughs> you get so bogged down in the minutia of just everyday stuff, you know, grading papers or dealing with stuff you don't want to deal with, people you don't want to deal with. But then after the show, I know I'm always super energized which sucks because we always record kind of late at night, but <laughs> it's true. Uh... <laughs> at least I'm mentally refreshed after the show. Yeah. So I I'm, well, what, what paper do you want to start with here? We thought we would do four <laughs> and then introduce our new one for this week um... because we had so many good ones to choose from. Oh, gosh, we did. Um, even the new one's pretty on point. Um, now, this is a, a one that you chose, and I chose the, it's from episode 19, which these titles crack me up going back to look at, uh, The Whole Office is Batteries. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and it's the, it's the paper about penguin poop. <laughs> so, pressures produced when penguins poo, calculations on avian defecation. <laughs> I, you know, I just, I saw that penguin poop when I was little at the zoo, and it's blown my mind. <laughs> and figure one in this paper is just the best thing ever, which I know I talk about again. Yes, this fun paper is called <laughs> Pressures Produced When Penguins Poo, Calculations on Avian Defecation. So now this is really impressive, so I don't know if, if you haven't seen this, I mean, I hate to say YouTube this, but you really need to because I remember being a little kid and going to the zoo and this penguin bent over and my mom and I were like, what? what's happening? And it pooped and that stuff shot like 10 feet out behind him. <laughs> and we both just stood there and we're like, wow, that was impressive. <laughs> yeah. And this paper goes through an incredibly detailed analysis. <laughs> it does. Of the process of penguins <laughs> pooing. It's quite exceptional. Um, so this, this was this is a 2003 Polar Biology, Benno et al. We'll have the link in the show notes. And all we can say is pull it up to follow along with the figures. <laughs> um, yeah, the, the figures are... 
I, you know, every time we do this, I feel like the figures get better and better, but I don't think we'll ever be able to top figure one ever. <laughs> yeah, it's quite possible. <laughs> so in an effort to calculate the pressures involved in this squirting, they want to know, well, first they have to know how far it traveled before it hits the ground, and they need to know some material properties. So, of course, density, viscosity, that kind of thing. And then you need to know the, uh, how high the penguin is above the ground and also the shape of the stream that is being projected. Uh, <laughs> so this is a little yeah. bit difficult of a paper to discuss politely, but their conclusion basically said that between 10 and 60 kilopascals of pressure was required to uh, make the poo go this far. And for those of us that aren't used to kilopascals for pressure, that works out to somewhere between one and a half and 8.7 pounds per square inch. That doesn't surprise me at all. After seeing this in action, it really doesn't. I mean, it takes, that stuff flies, literally. <laughs> yeah. And this is, I mean, it's a really nice, first they do in a very approximate solution saying that it's an ideal fluid, which means it's non-viscous. And then they go into a second set of approximations where they actually do the full viscous fluid solution. So this is Hagen-Poiseuille equations. And mm -hmm. yeah, it's a really fascinating analysis. I mean, they do Reynolds number <laughs> calculations to see, you know, we're assuming laminar flow. Is that really valid or is there energy going into turbulent mixing? Um, and one of the problems here with trying to you know, determine all this stuff, and I really like this sentence in the paper, several attempts were to measure fecal viscosities with a high-performance viscous, viscous meter. That's a difficult <laughs> <were> word. made. <laughs> it is. It is. Sorry. It's been a long day on the death march. But owing to small remnants of crustacean cuticle, fish bones, and scales, the readings were inconsistent. <laughs> <laughs> so if you could only get them to eat, like, penguin chow, it would have been easier. But, uh, yeah. Different pieces of crabs come out at different velocities, obviously, which made measurements difficult. All right. And one thing that they said uh, towards the end of the paper that I really didn't think about was, okay, atmospheric pressure is around 100 kPa. So we're looking at penguins that are putting greater than half of atmospheric pressure behind this poo. <laughs> Like I said, it's not surprising if you have seen this in action. It's quite incredible. Right. Well, and the authors uh, in the paper saying how the birds could theoretically increase the distance because they want to get this as far away from their nest as possible and they don't leave their nest uh, during breeding, right? Right. So that's the evolutionary reasoning behind this development. Right. And the authors say, well, you know, if you shot it at a 45 degree upwards angle, that would maximize the distance, but unfortunately, the posture can't of the penguin can't do that. <laughs> but I did not know this. It says eagles and other birds of prey indeed direct their stream upward by 15 to 30 degrees. Unpublished observation. Yeah, that's my favorite part, <laughs> is that's an unpublished observation. So we don't exactly wear that thing. <laughs> I won't look at Reynolds numbers the same again. You know, we talk about it when we talk about classic rock deposition. But um, thanks for ruining that for me. <laughs> <laughs> well, and the one thing they said was they did notice that this was in every direction from the nest. And they do not know 
whether, you know, wind, maybe the penguins actually do say, okay, well, I don't want to poo into the wind because that would make <laughs> sense. Um, they said that maybe that should be addressed on another expedition to Antarctica. It's the final <laughs> sentence. This is a great example of one of those papers where you just never know where you're going to get inspiration. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was awful, Shannon. <laughs> it's been a long day. <laughs> yes. Oh. So that's a fun paper Friday. Definitely worth checking out and brushing up Absolutely. on your fluid dynamics. <laughs> Well, I think we had a little bit too much fun with that one. It just makes me laugh now every time, just thinking about it almost uncontrollably. <laughs> um, yeah, it's so good. Oh, the figure in that paper is just amazing. Well, hey, somebody has to study penguin poop. It's so true. There's definite positives to this besides <laughs> just the hilarity factor. Yes. <laughs> we have a lot of pee-pee and poo-poo papers, I will say. <laughs> I don't know what that says yeah, about us. <laughs> I think it's kind of like Mythbusters. Yeah. Things that are gross or things that go boom. Yeah, that's that's true. Are pretty good candidates. That's absolutely true. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> so this fun paper Friday, I remember how it got started. Do you remember? I I remember that before we had the show, that I I do my weekly review at Starbucks. Mm -hmm. on friday mornings mm -hmm. and i tried for the longest time to get hashtag fun paper friday <laughs> to be a thing where people would find fun academic papers read them every friday and put them on twitter or on facebook and there were a few people that would do it and share every now and then but it never really took off and it kind of made me sad yeah and it's like i always you know read them but had no clue where to find these which you know you made me get over that and said pick some fun papers and i figured it out but uh <laughs> that's what i remember is like logging in i'm not a massive facebook user as i'm sure surprises no one and i remember always logging <laughs> in and reading them and then talking about them and like this is a pretty good idea but it needs it that's exactly it it needed a wider distribution Right. Which we've provided. And, well, and academics are, of course, you know, traditionally too busy to do anything. But yes. Their thing. And it wasn't really getting to non-academic audiences. Right. Which is where it needed to go. Yes. Yes. That's so, the whole point. And, and it was a way that I was trying to keep myself excited about reading papers by every Friday hanging this carrot in front of me of, <laughs> I'm going to read about something funny. <laughs> exactly. Um. And it's, I mean... How do you find fun papers now? Because we've hit all the easy ones. Man, we have. And we'll overlap sometimes, which is funny. And they'll be like, oh, I saw that on that website. Yeah. <laughs> and there's only so many synonyms of funny or weird scientific paper that you can actually type in. Um, I, I was following, and it was after you started Fun Paper Friday. There's this scientific Easter egg Tumblr. Yeah, Tumblr people. Yes. It's still a thing. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and so I, I followed that. And so my first couple of papers came from there. And they were just, you know, they were Easter eggs in science papers. And so that was funny stuff. And now I just kind of Google stuff. Obviously, sites like, you know, I freaking love science and stuff like that are usually good. Or even Slate. We've gotten a lot of stuff off of Slate. 
or cracked. Yeah. I've gotten some stuff off of there, too. Um, or the Nature News blog. That's a good one. Right. Yeah, I've gone in there to get this, those little quick papers. Those are nice. I mean, I'm not going to lie. I found this one we're doing today on BuzzFeed. <laughs> <laughs> so... <laughs> You I, fell for the clickbait. Oh, oh! if it's BuzzFeed, I'm always falling for their clickbait. It's fantastic. <laughs> it's so good. I mean, it's a pretty good paper today, so it was it, worth It's it. true. Yeah. We'll keep building. Yeah, and, uh. cl- and clearly that was a list of like 30, so I've got a backlog now. <laughs> right. And we also get fun papers from listeners that have found them in their own fields. Yes. Yeah, we've gotten some pretty good ones um, from that as well. And stuff and, that we didn't know existed, like the teaspoon one that everyone was like, oh, I would have sent it in if I knew you hadn't seen it. <laughs> yeah. And another source that we seem to get a lot of fun papers from is, oddly enough, the <laughs> medical literature. I know. I don't know if there's just, like, a plethora of people that comb it for funny stuff. I mean, are, are the biological science people just funnier than the natural science people is that is that the thing oh definitely not i, th- I wouldn't think so either but <laughs> you may... can send your hate mail to <laughs> <laughs> it just it just seems like there's a lot of it and maybe it goes back to the gross stuff is funny that could be because there's and... not a lot of gross material science stuff <laughs> yes and th- this paper was also on both of our lists yeah. But I, I ended up picking it. Uh, it's from episode 22. It was like two Volkswagens battling. <laughs> also uh, excellent. <laughs> yes. Which I believe was you talking about bears. Oh, bears. Uh-huh. I use that phrase every time I talk about that story. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh, the paper is Bollinger et al. Are full or empty beer bottles sturdier? And does their fracture threshold suffice to break the human skull? Friday. <laughs> so you found this fun paper, and I have to say, you you may take the cake for this. Uh, so you're really much better at finding these than I am, but I, I will agree, this is a really good one. So it comes from the <laughs> Journal of Forensic and Legal Medicine, and the title, uh, it's by Bollinger et al., but the title is, Are Full or Empty Beer Bottles Sturdier, and Does Their Fracture Threshold Suffice to Break the Human Skull? <laughs> <laughs> yes, so this is, well, it's got around six authors on it, it looks like, and it's an entire paper about exactly that. <laughs> We're going to break a bunch of beer bottles and measure how much force it takes to do that, <laughs> and then compare that to how much force it took to break the skull of a cadaver head. <laughs> exactly. Um, so <laughs> um, I'll go ahead and let you talk about your favorite part of the paper, because it's a good, it's in the intro here. <laughs> Which states. Yeah, so third, third, third paragraph in, it says, The half-liter refillable beer bottle is, according to the author's own experience, a commonly utilized <laughs> instrument in physical disputes. <laughs> That's probably one of the best lines in a scientific paper. <laughs> <laughs> but so these, uh, these people wrote this paper because often they were called, because obviously this is in the jur- Journal of Forensics, um, they were called to ask you know, how much damage could a beer bottle actually inflict? And does it matter whether it's full or empty? And it turns out it really does matter. And it's kind of counterintuitive, actually. 
Yeah, so when you first hear this, you might say, ah, that can't be. But then pause and think about it for about two minutes. So (laughs) it actually turns out that full beer bottles are weaker than their empty counterparts. Quite a bit weaker, too, because full beer bottles could tolerate energies up to 25 joules before they break, 25 to 30. And then it's 40 for empty beer bottles. And this was my favorite part is, is why, because it is counterintuitive and it has to do with what's in the bottle. Right. So first, beer is, well, it's a fluid. Right. And it's really not that compressible. I mean, it's water, which, yeah, there's a little bit of compressibility there, but not much compared to air. Right. So when you hit the beer bottle, that energy is transferred for the, through the fluid very efficiently, not absorbed in compressing the air and heating it slightly to the other side of the bottle. Right. And then the other wonderful thing about beer is that it's carbonated. And that's actually um, the other major factor in full beer bottles not breaking is the gas pressure due to the carbonation. Yeah. And they mentioned this in there that home brewers know this. And I know several <laughs> people that have home brewed and had their beer sadly explode. Exactly. The line, as every incautious home brewer knows... Even small amounts of gas pressure can cause bottles to explode. So that leads to the fact that empty beer bottles, if your point is to fracture somebody's skull, are the way to go. So drink your beer first before you get into a bar fight. Right. And, of course, they say, well, this is only considering the use of beer bottles as clubs, not as puncture objects. So if you break the end like you see in the Westerns or that kind of thing. (laughs) Right. Exactly. Yep. These were just a beer bottle whacking basically... The equivalent of a human skull is what they did. They didn't use cadavers, but they used sort of a putty (laughs) and board combo that would, (laughs) that would. Right. (laughs) I'm sorry. This is, it's a really funny picture of them having their little putty and board in a little bathtub. And then they drop a steel ball, which equates to the pressure of a beer bottle hitting a human skull. And yes, they say it could cause some serious damage. Yeah, and then where they get the numbers for how much energy it actually takes to fracture a skull are what comes from a cadaver tests. But I believe that was another study. They also, which this seemed like maybe a little bit of overkill, but I'm very glad they did it. Uh, They did a pretty much a CAT scan of the beer bottle to get the glass thickness at different points to figure out where would be the best place to use. Right, exactly. Where would be the weakest place and where would be the best place to hit somebody with it. (laughs) This is a very well thought out study, so I don't know what the authors experienced, but (laughs) he turned it into a really (laughs) cool paper in the Journal of Forensic and Legal Medicine. You know what I really love about that paper? Because I went back and reread this one because this was a favorite of mine too. Um, was the experimental setup was so unique, I thought. Yeah, and the results were surprising. Yes, and I remember being super angry at students and picking this while I was out at field camp, and that's <laughs> 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 which also makes me laugh. <laughs> I was yeah. like, man, I was mad. <laughs> it is funny looking back at the show notes. Sometimes it's like a diary because it triggers diary. memories yes. of what was happening two years ago. <laughs> oh, exactly. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah, because these were both fairly, fairly early on, uh, fairly early on picks that we had for those two. Yeah, so you know, thinking back, I-, I was trying to remember this, and when did you and I meet? So wasn't it advanced field geophysics methods class? I, I think so. 
Okay. I'm pretty sure because I know the department head had told me when I said I wanted to do uh, geology, geophysics, and meteorology double major that only one other person had done it and they were crazy. (laughs) And then I found out it was you. I'm kind of a legend. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) You know, I say that in jest, but I am. (laughs) So, yeah, I remember we, we took this class together and we had done some, like, I think we looked for a steam tunnel on campus with a gravimeter and some other things. Mm-hmm. And yeah. then we went to your house to try to find a collapsed pipe <laughs> That's right. with a ground penetrating radar. Um, so this had to have been, I don't, was this my second semester back? Was this a spring class? It was a spring class, right? This was a spring class. So was okay. that 2010 or 20, 2011? 2010. No, 2010, 20, 2011. Yeah. Sorry. I started in the fall of 2010. Um, and came back. And so this was my first year as a PhD student. Yeah. And, so, and as yeah. as I remember it, for quite a while, even after the class, we really didn't hang out much. No. And it was really funny you talking about hearing about me because that's how you were introduced to me, like through somebody else. Because you <laughs> used to dress up on Thursdays or something like that. What was that? Yeah, Dress Up Thursday. It was the precursor to Casual Friday, so I'd wear a coat and tie every Thursday as an undergrad. Exactly. And so clearly I was like, who is that nerd that's in this class? (laughs) And you were introduced as, oh, he's doing geophysics and a meteorology major. And I remember scoffingly saying, oh, well, that's much easier than geology meteorology. It's practically the same degree. (laughs) (laughs) Just so you know. (laughs) Right. I definitely remember saying that. Um, but yeah, so we brought the class out here because <laughs> the house we had just moved into um, had a really old sewer system and our trunk pipes for the um, distribution had collapsed. And so we were trying to image them with the GPR. And it didn't work. It didn't work because they weren't <laughs> pipes at all. They were actually made out of this paper. <laughs> yes. And so that was not good. <laughs> so I, I was looking for some old field data for a request that somebody had made in Software Underground. But does anybody have any old EM data? And so I started digging back through my archives of field data that I've collected, and I found my report on <laughs> finding or not finding your sewer pipes oh, no for doubt. that class. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. So you were an undergrad. I had to do like five extra reports because I was a grad student in that class. That was that was crap. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and then uh, I got an office in Sarkis, mm-hmm. which was the building that we were in. And uh, I think from there, it ended up with multiple lunch beer conversations. Yes, yeah, because obviously the geology, geophysics, meteorology thing brought us together, clearly. Like, right. Who, who shares that same thing, right? And it always begins with a conversation, you know, it's the same physics, but a different time scale. How amazing is that? I I might have said that on Twitter the day that we're recording this. Uh. (laughs) It's so true, man. And it constantly amazes me. And to have someone, instead of going, ah, go, I know. (laughs) And then also get really excited about it. (laughs) I think that was the bonding moment right there. Yep. So there were lots of uh, lunches at the various bars around the building. Right. Yeah. Um, Since we. And then we did field work. Yeah, yeah, that always uh, that always brings you together too. Um, 
because a part of my thesis, I wanted to do some geophysical investigations, and so I dragged you out there to help me with that, and then we did this other class where I helped you guys sample, and so, yeah, that was that was basically it, our love of beer and meteorology. Yeah, and there are some great field stories that sometime, maybe for episode 200, <laughs> we can do a field story show. The time I threw you in front of a bear. Yeah, I remember. It might not have been a bear. It was probably a bird in a tree, but... <laughs> but you thought it was a bear. Hey, you did uh... too. You were scared. <laughs> uh, yeah, so that's... So the... speaking speaking of animals... Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Good segue. That's another place that we get <laughs> some fun papers from. Yeah, we do. It's very focused on the natural science. Um, so my next pick was the paper by Catania about leaping eels electrify threats, supporting Humboldt's account of a battle with horses. And that was in... This was just creepy. It was. This, and this was fairly recent, episode 76, You Can't Run Away in an Oxbow Lake. <laughs> Which is about the fun paper. Yes. <laughs> um, and I, I love it. I love it because it's this cool sort of, it's an, the historical account of this guy getting attacked, his, his horse is getting attacked by eels, was from like the 1800s. And it's just a cool thing where, hey, that's a weird thing that happened. Let's science this for real. And then this guy did all these experiments with these real electric eels which are terrifying and there are videos and they're so uh, you actually found another eel paper that is absolutely bizarre <laughs> it is um man i love these pnas papers that we always find too and so this one did not disappoint not even close and it's titled <laughs> leaping eels electrify threats supporting humboldt's account of a battle with horses by uh, Catania from um, Vanderbilt. And I read the title about five times <laughs> and couldn't figure out what it was talking about until nope. I actually read the introduction nope. to this paper. <laughs> um, it was really the figure that got me because one of the figures, um, so if you don't know, I didn't know either. Um, in the 1800s, Alexander von Humboldt published this account and it's just what it says, a battle between eels and horses. And the first figure is sort of a 50 years later rendition um, of this battle. <laughs> and I guess Humboldt was a scientist who hired some local fishermen in South America to catch him some eels for research. And so he did that, that fisherman, by putting these horses into a pond, letting the eels jump up and electrify them till they were spent, and then collecting the eels. And... I mean, two horses drowned, and they only collected five eels. It didn't seem like a very efficient way to do this. <laughs> no, and my, my note on that is, my God, how much did Humboldt pay for these eels that you could expend two horses and, you know, have the other ones in pain and hurt from this? So I guess a lot. Um, but there's actually, <laughs> there's actually a lot of sort of natural selection reasons for this happening. But I guess it was so um, interesting because no one in the 200 years since this happened, had seen eels jump up and attack things. Yeah. And I think we've talked about eels before on here. 
and it never ceases to amaze me how absolutely weird they are. Oh, oh, so creepy. Um, <laughs> I will point out the coolest thing that I thought, I, I know I say that a lot because I think everything is really cool, but <laughs> in the results section there on the front page, the first sentence says, the behavior described in this investigation was serendipitously discovered during research into electric eel predatory behavior serendipitously discovered like this is not what Catania set out to prove or show or do anything with and it just happened serendipitously which is the great thing about science you never know what you're going to find because this is what wound up being (laughs) you know the the data that he published and it was to look at these eels and how they jump out of water and the serendipitous part was he was using eels for some other investigation and so in order to get the eels They'd hold out a net and, you know, try to scoop them up. And as they did that, the eels would back up in the tank and then launch themselves until they made contact with the metallic rim (laughs) and handle of the net. (laughs) To which Catania says, this behavior was both literally and figuratively shocking. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and I I would not want to be shocked by one of these. There looked like several hundred volts and a good fraction of an amp. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. Um, the greatest part of this short paper is that he has a bunch of links to these movies of these eels doing this. Because they had the eels strike a whole bunch of different things, you know, plates and um, stuff to try to measure the voltage. And the videos are unbelievable. You should absolutely follow those links in the paper and watch these, you know, slow-mo videos of these eels electrocuting things that come at them. It's terrifying. Right. And I will link the videos in in case you can't get to the paper as well, mm-hmm. because the videos are all not behind a paywall. Right. I don't believe the paper is either. But the paper is not either. Okay. Yeah. Sometimes so. it's confusing because our accounts generally from the universities put us behind the paywall. Yes. Uh, yeah, that is true. <laughs> I know. I try, I try to always access them outside of it to see if it worked and it did. So hopefully everyone can get to those, but um, yeah, you should spend the time to do this because not only did he, you know, set up these plates and stuff, but they also set up, some fake predator heads and a fake arm (laughs) that has LEDs attached to it. And so as the eels actually come up out of the water and attack, it lights up the LEDs in these, you know, fake predator, which is a big alligator head and this fake arm to show you, you know, when the eel is making contact, the (laughs) crazy amount of electricity that's going through these things. Yeah. And, they said that the eels actually have to keep their chin at a really high angle because that's where one of the electric organs is. So yeah. the eels are generally head positive, tail negative. And so they have to raise their chin to try to keep contact with you. And as they come further and further out of the water, they were when they were in the water and touching you, it basically makes a current divider. They show the equivalent electrical circuit in the paper. But as they come further out of the water, they can put more current into you and less into you plus the water. Right. Right. So I don't I don't know if you caught this. Um, so I guess Michael Faraday did some eel experiments as well. And I highlighted this passage. So it says Michael Faraday's hands on eel experiments provided a key insight. And so he points out that when one hand was in the water, the shock was felt in that hand only. Whatever part of the fish it was applied to it was not very strong. And it was only in the part immersed in water. So just like you were saying, as long as the eels keeping contact above the water, like it's more shocking. But I also love that Faraday didn't use a fake arm. No fake hands right. for him. <laughs> <laughs> and I wonder if it was actually him or a poor graduate student that was doing those experiments. <laughs> well, 
I think we know how that goes. So Exactly. <laughs> um, I thought this was really cool because in 200 years, you know, eels, just like you said, they're really strange. Um, I remember we were on a, um, a geologic uh, field trip to the Turks and the Caicos, and one of the fishermen caught an eel, and he freaked out, put it immediately back in. It was all kinds of bad juju associated with eels in places where locals come and contact them with them a lot. And I thought that was interesting as well. Yeah, well, and it talked about also some of the seasonal, there would be a seasonal flood and some of the eels would get into places that then as the floodwaters went down, they would be stuck in little oxbow lakes. Uh, and they said that actually lined up really well with this the story of the horses because it talks about the mud. And they said this was probably something that was cut off. The eels were trapped in here in this muddy environment and they did not want to be intruded upon by these large predators. So they thoroughly spent themselves trying to get the predators out of the water, which would have worked if the the fishermen hadn't been using branches to herd the horses back in. Right, exactly. Um, so this is a really, you know, this is a Darwinian sort of evolution of these eels because of the climate of the area and the seasonal rainfall. I thought that was really interesting. I didn't know that at all. You know, I've only seen eels in the ocean. Um, so there are a lot of a lot of strange things that happen in the Amazon, and this is one of them. And they talk about, you know, their breeding seasons correspond to this. The male eels are stuck in these pools protecting their young until the next rainy season comes. And so that's why that these eels aren't just defensive, but they have this really aggressive offensive tact of jumping out of the water and making that connection of that circuit to ward potential predators off. Yeah, because the normal response, you would think, would be to run away. But you can't right. run away when you're in an oxbow lake. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Words to live by. <laughs> That's show title right there. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, so this was really weird. Those videos are super creepy. If you weren't creeped out by eels, you will be after you watch these things. Um, they're in both slow-mo and real time. And you can see how fast these guys come up and just zap the crap out of these fake alligator heads and these fake hands. Well, that was a uh, electrifying paper, if oh, we didn't make that joke enough. Uh, yeah, I think we did. <laughs> yeah. Shocking that you brought it back. <laughs> oh. <laughs> we should probably uh, move on quickly, because I see this devolving. <laughs> uh, yes. So, <laughs> science puns never go well. No. <laughs> so, I, I, what are some of the things that have surprised you about doing this podcast, other than that we're still doing it? <laughs> Yeah, okay. I was going to say, that's obviously the most surprising thing. Um, I'm going to go back to the thing that surprises me. And this is just a personal thing. This is not really about the podcast. But I'm surprised at how jazzed up I get after we record. Because, you know, it's at the end of the day. I'm I'm a night person anyway. I know you're not really as much as I am. Um, right. So that's fine. That's never bothered me. But the deal is, like, you know, you have a crappy day. And we've already set, <laughs> we've already pushed it off far enough and we have to record that night. And you're like, oh God, I don't want to do this. And then I sit down and it's like the best thing of the week. You know, I mean, that, that's the thing that has surprised me about the podcast thing in general. Yeah, I think that's a good one. It's, it's very true, though. You're right. Generally, as soon as we stop recording, uh, you tell me to go to bed. And <laughs> I know. I do. You got to go uh, night night. <laughs> It'll work yeah. out better when you're in Colorado since you'll be an hour earlier. 
It, it's true. Yeah, we'll, it's we'll switch that. Close to our natural cycles. Because I know yeah. you always text, text me and it's like six o'clock here. And yeah, I'm like, oh. Yeah, I'm saying you're never up when I no, text. No, no, so. not at all. Um. <laughs> <laughs> but that's one thing. Yeah. What about you? Well, I think, I, I thought this would be a pretty narrow audience. Besides I thought parents. we were going to get practicing <laughs> geoscientists that listen. Mm-hmm. And not that many. Mm-hmm. And let me tell you, we have the best listeners. Uh, <laughs> we do. They're an active group. <laughs> we have a really active and engaged group of listeners. Our listenership has continued to grow throughout the entire course of the podcast so far. Shocking. And we actually have seen uh, the rate of growth almost double in the last few months. So from 6 to 12. <laughs> right. Uh, and I, I guess it's... It surprised me the people that have found our show interesting and bringing them back into their original love of the natural sciences. Right. Because I think we can both uh, get on board with the fact that you can get burned out pretty pretty easy. Oh, yeah. And start Definitely. hating the things that you originally loved. <laughs> um, so, yeah. That was, that was really cool. I was also surprised by that. I really did think it would be like, you know, my students that listened or our, you know, fellow grad students and stuff like that. That's, that's who and I And those aren't the people be. that listen. Not at all. Not even <laughs> close. <laughs> They're like, what is this? Yeah. What does this sticker mean? Do you have a, oh, you do that? Really? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, a lot of my old students do listen, actually. So that's, that's pretty cool. But it's always my intro students. Yeah. Not my, and I say intro, my intro geology students that aren't geology majors. It's not actually the geologist that i teach <laughs> well and so here's generally how things work with the show is we record a day or two before it goes out generally mm-hmm. then i do the editing i upload it to our podcast host service and i say at six o'clock in the morning eastern on friday release the show the file goes out it goes to your phones and then while I'm doing my weekly review, so generally by 9 o'clock or so, I go and I make sure the show notes are posted on the website for people to look at. I have been shocked as in the last couple months, there have been a few shows that the audio didn't go out until 9 or 10 in the morning because <laughs> things have been a little nutty. <laughs> and I've been shocked by the number of people that are like, hey, my commute was empty. I normally listen to you guys on Friday morning as I'm driving Aww. into work. Aww. And it's, uh, I don't know, it's really nice. I just want to say thanks to everybody that listens. And oh, amen. You all are awesome. And telling us about who you are is the coolest thing for us, really. I mean, we've got truck drivers in the Northeast that also build mountain bikes and farmers in Ireland. And it's super cool because it's so surprising, I think, to both of us that it's more than our parents. <laughs> I don't even think my parents listen anymore. I don't know. (laughs) And the fun paper that I picked for our last retro fun paper (laughs) uh, was actually sent in by listener Andrew, who I had the pleasure of getting to meet and uh, have a lot of chats with over beer and great food at the Scientific (laughs) Python Conference this summer in Austin. So Andrew sent in this paper 
A Few Good Men, Surname Sharing Economist Co-Authors. Fantastic. So this was sent in by a listener. So thank you very, very much, Andrew. Uh, It's called A Few Good Men, Surname Sharing Economist Co-Authors by Goodman, 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 and Goodman. It's so wonderful. (laughs) Uh, Despite the fact that that's one of my favorite movies. Um, This is fantastic. And (laughs) it's really, the footnote is really the best, um, where they thank (laughs) people for helping them out with them. And um, at the end of the footnote, it says, you know, the analysis and conclusions set forth are those of the authors. Uh, We do not indicate concurrence by other members of the research staff or the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve. Any errors are Goodman's. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Spectacular. And so though this paper sounds totally ridiculous, there are actually some sound things in it, which are why we try to use these kind of things for Fun Paper Friday. And Andrew has listened uh, long enough to know that this fits exactly what we're looking for. (laughs) Exactly. Um, The first thing that I learned that's actual learning was that um i guess in economics that when you write a paper it's alphabetically listed authors and that just seems totally bananas Uh, Uh. yes and so there's all (laughs) kinds of research saying that you know authors that have surnames that are higher in the alphabet get cited and stuff more and that's crazy yeah i mean just because your last name is abrams you are going to have more recognition because they talk about the et al. bias. Mm-hmm. And th- this is completely true. You can be second author on a huge paper, but when somebody cites it in a talk, they're going to say, Doolin et al. showed. Right. And it exactly. doesn't matter who the other people on the paper were, unless exactly. you know the paper. Yeah. You're going to say, Doolin did this. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And they talk about, you know, that the number of single person papers you know is going down as we collaborate more and so we should be happy about collaboration but you know no one wants something for nothing right so yeah and i will say there are some mixed feelings on that Uh, i think a lot of times the bar for authorship now is way lower than it used to be yeah yeah i would say that's probably true as well i mean collaboration is great but if you're just looking at somebody's paper and you go oh i'm an author on that right right yeah yeah That's that's a separate problem, but... Yes. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> well outside the purview of this paper. Yes. Uh, and also, apparently, there was some group that combined all of the co-author surnames into a single surname in economics. So, <laughs> McNaugast is several economists, uh, several economists combining their names. That's fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, it also talks about when it's talking about just surnames and um, surname sharing among economists, they start to talk about what the most common surnames are. And Smith is the first one listed, which I think is funny because it shows sort of economic lineage, I feel like, with, you know, Adam Smith. <laughs> right. <laughs> I thought that was a funny point as well. <laughs> uh, yeah. And there are so many great quotes in this paper (laughs) it really is it's truly a very quotable paper um they (laughs) they delve into the relationships between you know similar or shared surname 
authorship, you know, whether it's husband and wife or parent child or just people at the same institution. So a shared institution who happened to have the same last name. Um, and in the section that says our contribution, I love it. <laughs> our contribution to this literature is twofold, right? So they believe it's the first time there are four economists who have shared a surname, but we're at different institutions and we're not related to each other. As far as they could tell, they said they weren't interested yes. to spend the money on DNA testing. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, it's so great. <laughs> Yeah, um, and oh, sorry. Go, what was the second oh, no, point? No, nothing. That was it. Oh, oh well, that um, was the second point. Was the one you said? So I think it's also fun that they talk about areas where we could improve. For example, the only one publication they found of a grandparent grandchild co-published <laughs> paper. Yes. Ah, <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. I think with people having kids later these days, that's going to happen less and less. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Uh, but it's really interesting to hear a little bit about because there are so many people that work in the same field that end up married uh, or right. so many siblings that go in the same field. In fact, they had one example where it was two twins uh, <laughs> co-authored a paper with each of their, at the time, fiancés who before yes. the paper got out, they were married, which says something exactly. about the publication process. Uh, so it ended up being four authors all with the same last name two twins and their wives and each couple one couple was a lawyer and one couple was an economist couple right and so that they point out that this goodman paper is the first of its kind because they're all economists right so this was a really great find and kind of tongue-in-cheek points out some of the problems in publishing and attribution of work Oh, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's it's ludicrous and hilarious, but it still serves this purpose because it's absolutely true. Um, I mean, the last paragraph is just priceless where they point out people, other economists who should publish together, people who have the same last surname and the same first initial. And uh, <laughs> Yes, and I like the last one. We encourage cousins, Erzo F.P. Lutmer, and Erzo J.G. Lutmer, Dartmouth and University of Minnesota, respectively, to consider collaborating for reasons too obvious to state. <laughs> and they also have a potential list of collaborations yes. on their this. website. <laughs> uh, this was fantastic. Um, it's, it's really good. Well, I think that was a pretty... <laughs> Uh, a high note to end our retro fun papers on. Oh, man, it was. And there wasn't even one figure in that paper. <laughs> no, and it's just, it still fascinates me that things like, you know, you see all these companies, AAA locksmiths or something. Right. So they're first in the phone book. That makes a difference in how much you get cited. That's still terrifying. It is. That's unbelievable. I'm glad that I chose to take my husband's name because I was a Myers. That was way down there. <laughs> yeah, I'm. I mean, I'm an L. So yeah, yeah, you're pretty. You're pretty good. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Man, but these that are means great. it's time for everybody's favorite segment again: <laughs> the new Fun Paper Friday. Yay! <laughs> yeah, and that was I, that was a bear bill. <laughs> you found this one, and 
I, I feel like you're sending me a message. <laughs> I have to say, maybe I don't know. Um, I I didn't. Think, Ow. I didn't. <laughs> I didn't think you'd think this one was that funny, and <laughs> I'm not going to say that's why I picked it, but I thought it was pretty hilarious. Um, and so why I might be sending John a message is that the article is. Beards augment perception of men's age, social status, and aggressiveness, but not attractiveness. <laughs> and it's by Dixon and Basie. <laughs> I might as well shave, I guess. Exactly. There you go. I mean, unless you don't want to look like a baby. Because <laughs> your age and social status and your super aggressive behavior are perceived as very high. <laughs> right. It, it is interesting that, you know, I, I grew a beard... Probably November, my first year of graduate school. I mean... Or around November. I don't think it was a no-shape November thing. <laughs> you live in Pennsylvania, so it gets pretty cold. It gets pretty cold. Yeah. And I thought, man, eh, I'll shave it. So I had it for a little while. Said something about I was going to shave it. And everybody's like, no, don't shave it. <laughs> and it actually has, I think, you know, reduced, say, the number of times that if I go to try to get a beer somewhere that I have to pull out my driver's license that is hilarious I, I would i want to blame it on the beard not the increasing amount of white hair that i have <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah we'll stick with the beard then this is scientific yeah. evidence to back that up <laughs> i like it <laughs> it's so it's so funny um this was i clicked on it because it was a picture of ryan gosling i'm not gonna lie um, <laughs> and it was on the buzzfeed thing and i just thought it was hysterical and i was like oh john might not think this is as funny but it's a this thing is chock full of statistics oh yeah and you know, they had people pose with different facial expressions oh mm -hmm. and i thought it was really funny because one of the i haven't read a lot of beard literature but there's quite a bit actually about why beards <laughs> exist at all, which was, you know, a kind of cool thing that I learned while reading this paper. Yeah. Um, but they chose to look at these two different populations, right? So they asked both men and women, uh, Europeans from New Zealand, and then Polynesians from Samoa. And so these two very different ethnic groups. And the men would rate, well, I guess there was four different studies that they did, right? Right. So four different studies, and they had all these people come in, these guys come in and take these pictures, and they didn't just, of uh, just a guy with a beard, a guy smiling with a beard, guy angry with a beard, <laughs> and then they did that again with the same guys clean shaven. Yeah, and you know, in this first study, I mean, figure three, the mean attractiveness score went down with a full beard. That was actually quite surprising to me. But the error bars are large. They are, um, but still statistically significant. And that was true for both sets of women, both the New Zealand and the Samoa. Yes. And, and um... <laughs> well, likewise, the aggressiveness rating did indeed go up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, also true. Um, <laughs> it's so funny because I wonder, I was like, if you asked geologists this, I don't think this would be true at all. So, <laughs> No, <laughs> if you asked geologists this, it would either be, you know, 
attract if assertive whatever or what's wrong with you right yeah exactly <laughs> there are people without beards <laughs> it, agu you know where i'll be when this airs uh it is a flannel shirt chaco beard type meeting yeah i will say not as much as gsa but that's how you can tell the physicist from the geoscientist at agu <laughs> it's true yeah and <laughs> There are many other common characteristics other than beards that people, you know, carry Timbuktu bags, wear Patagonia jackets. Like, I don't know. You're There's just me. all You're of these just... things. That it's it's easy to spot who the geologists are in the You're crowd. You're just describing my wardrobe. <laughs> all yep. of it. I have all of those things. It's so true. <laughs> um, it, it, this was, I mean, you, you met your wife when you were clean shaven, though. So see, you should ask her. Uh, I didn't meet her when I was clean shaven, and then the next time she saw me, I had a full beard, and have ever since. And she said, man, he was aggressive. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Apparently. I do think if I shaved, I would probably look like a baby now. I think you probably would, too. So I think in your case, you should should definitely keep it. It's funny, because it's kind of true for some of the the pictures in here as well. Um, So I get the age thing immediately. I felt like that really didn't need... A lot of um, a lot of explanation, but there was a difference between if they asked men or women from both of those ethnic groups if the men in the in the study looked older. Yeah, so in New Zealand, the females said that you know you looked maybe a couple years older. Mm-hmm. The males said maybe a year. In Samoa, the females said up to. You know, pushing five years. Yeah. And the males had a similar response. I thought that was very interesting. Um, yeah. And I don't know. I mean, I don't. How, how many years do you think a beard adds? I know. And, and it's that's really interesting to me because they only showed the New Zealand, the Europeans in New Zealand, they only showed them other Europeans in New Zealand. And then the Samoans only saw other Samoans. And it's funny because I would say definitely in the Samoan pictures, because they show both, um, the age difference looks small to me as yeah. opposed to the the European descent New Zealanders. I think that age difference looks bigger. So I don't know if that's obviously coming from my own ethnic background or what, but that's pretty interesting because I think some of those guys, it looks like more than five years. Yeah. But not on the Samoans. I wouldn't say that. I'd say a couple. Yeah. So it was interesting. The other thing that they did uh, was social status. That was a that was a very interesting question too. Because they just did these on Likert scale too, and they used right. the word importance. So is this man of low importance, zero or five, extremely important? And that was that was pretty funny. I guess I wouldn't have thought to use that because the aim of these researchers is to figure out why men have beards at all. Right. Because you know, <laughs> obviously it's a sexual dimorphism thing, right? Women don't really have beards, at least not to the extent that guys do. So why do guys have it? And is it a social status thing? And yeah. And I think there are complicating factors here. Mm-hmm. Because when you look at the ratings, the females say the beard increases social status. But I look at the graph, I'm going to say roughly half a point. Yeah. It's All much of the closer. males say it's at least a point. Yes. 
Yes, which I think is hilarious. And that goes towards supporting um, their their sort of discussion point at the end is that beards don't really have anything to do with attracting women. You know, they're not there for fighting and they're not right. there for attracting women because all these women don't think they're attractive. So it's kind of like this male-male thing, which is funny. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because that that is it's a really big difference on that social status thing. Yeah, and <laughs> maybe maybe beards are just to show off to other guys. <laughs> it's, it's great because they point out in here and I thought this was hilarious. I highlighted it every time. <laughs> because they they suggest a couple of reasons why you have beards, right? Um, and there are some studies from the 60s that argued that beards increase the perceived status of men and may increase the social distance between rival men. Okay, the study kind of looks into that. Right. Um, and then also, and this is from like the 90s, but also started with Darwin in the 1800s. He wrote a lot about beards too. Um, and it said that the human beard is a costly signal of male competitive ability. And that's because beards are dirty. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. And so they say that um, that actually, you know, beards harbor a lot of parasites. You guys, listeners have probably heard, and I'm sure I made fun of you for having this too. Um, there was that study that came out that found like fecal matter in most beards or something like that. Yeah. Um, and so they were saying that having a beard would be costly because you're more likely to get an infection, but you're advertising that your immune system is so strong. Look at this magnificent beard I have and I'm not sick. <laughs> Says the person recording this early in case they get the plague at AGU again. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, I love it. I mean, this is just a great sentence. So it says, thus, hirsute men, so hairy men, could be advertising their superior immune system though possess through possessing a trait that is immunologically costly. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's crazy. Yeah. How do you even think about that? That's an unbelievable finding. <laughs> and it says in numerous places as well, besides that part, is that beards would be... <laughs> disadvantageous in fighting <laughs> yes <laughs> <laughs> so that was pretty funny because that was one thing that they keep bringing up is that no there'd be no advantageous you know somebody's going to grab it and it's not going to be good i say or for any small child <laughs> yes that <laughs> exactly. likes to grab and pull <laughs> oh, oh so they say okay although beards do not directly improve fighting ability <laughs> As is the case for weaponry used in male-male competition in many animals, it has been suggested that they may intimidate rival males by increasing perceptions of the size of the jaw, overall length of the face, and by enhancing aggressive and threatening jaw-thrusting behaviors. All right. Yeah. So, hence the aggressiveness that they're trying to, um, trying to look at in this study, too, because that's one of the suggestions is that it's just a threatening thing. Which, you know. So, so next time I'm in front of a classroom, I need to sternly <laughs> hold my jaw. And... Yeah. So they describe in here some uh, <laughs> that or grab your beard. Yours isn't long enough to do this, so you're going to have to work on this. Grab your yeah. beard with both hands and split it in the middle. That is also a threatening behavior that has been shown in some tribes. <laughs> okay. Uh -huh. Yep. And jutting your beard forward. So do that too. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to have to... Uh... 
Stop trimming it for that to yeah, happen. Yeah, you are. Yeah. <laughs> if you could make it pointy, <laughs> that's just me throwing that in. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so this is really this is really interesting because I guess I've never thought of why you have beards. I would have just thought it was for for warmth or something like that. Or for not shaving every day. Uh, or laziness. Yeah, that's one too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, it, this was kind of cool. I thought it was yeah. a very interesting uh, paper. And their statistics were really interesting too. Yeah, no, I thought this was a great fun paper and a great way to wrap up our fun hundredth show. <laughs> I can't say it enough. It's so great. <laughs> <laughs> so we, as promised, do have a bonus though. It is just all kinds of fun on the show today. It is. There's a link in the show notes to an article from The Onion, which is a satirical newspaper. And the title is, Scientists Make Discovery About World's Silt Deposits, But Understand If You Aren't Interested in That. (laughs) It's a few paragraphs long. Just click the link and enjoy. And know that everybody I know that works on shales has used this picture in their presentations this last week. Uh, Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Beautiful. Well, Shannon, I guess we'll do this again in another 100 shows. Yeah, let's hope so. We should probably plan ahead, you know, just to make sure we've got it. (laughs) Yeah. We've got all the funniness covered. I There's really a wealth of fun papers, though, so I think we'll be good. Oh, yeah. And <laughs> if you want to let us know more fun papers or anything about the show, or if you just want to write in and introduce yourself, like Shannon said, we really enjoy getting an idea of who's listening and why you're listening. So we'd love to hear from you. Shannon, how can they get a hold of us? Um, they can email us, show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. You can find any of our other web episodes um, if you're looking for something to do or just want to read about some of these fun papers on our website, too, don'tpanicgeocast.com. We're on Twitter at geo underscore Lehman, at Shannon Doolin, and together we are at Don't Panic Geo. And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies.